0: The Gospel reading, which is also the sermon text, John 18, verses 1 to 14, page 1074 in the Bible of the Pew. Immediately following the Passover meal that Jesus had with his disciples, John recounts the following in a rather terse fashion, given its import. When Jesus had spoken these words, which was His high priestly prayer, He went out with His disciples across the book Brook Kedron, where there was a garden which He and His disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed Him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with the disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek?" They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they all drew back, fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you have given me, not one will be lost. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, struck the right ear and struck, sorry, the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear the servant's name was malchus so jesus said to peter put your sword into the sheath into its sheath shall i not drink the cup that the father has given me so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the jews arrested jesus and bound him first They led him to Annas, for he was the father in law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed. That's it. Sorry. This is the gospel of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Brad. My name is Sam. I'm an assistant pastor here. Our pastor's name is Mike, and he is out of town today, so you're stuck with me. Um, Like Brad just read, we're in John 18 today, Um, and I want to talk a little bit about power this morning. I'm sure you've all heard the quote before, power tends to corrupt. Sometimes when you hear it, it's power, just power corrupts. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Um, that was said in 1897, a guy named Lord Acton, and he was writing a letter. He was kind of having a um, letter argument with this guy named Bishop Creighton. There are two church historians, and they were kind of having an internal debate about how to write about evils of leaders, specifically in the Catholic Church. Um, And Lord Acton was arguing that we should just treat him like everybody else and call evil evil. And to do that, um, he gave that quote, that famous quote I just read, and he also went on to say that great men are almost always bad men. And uh, I I think in making that point, he was using an argument about power that kind of assumes that power in itself inherently is, is bad. It's corruptive. It's corrosive. There's something corrosive about power, and his cynical view of power has echoed through the years, and especially in the most recent generations. So we see all these research studies, Pew Research, um, or Pew Research's study recently showed that Generation Z is more distrustful of the power of institutions, like the government and the church and higher ed, they are more distrustful of those powers than any other generation through all the political and cultural craziness that we've had the last several years, I think a lot of the big questions that we've faced have to do with our understanding of power. What is power? Who should have it? Why should they have it? What should we do with it? But I don't think those are just big, abstract, cultural or institutional questions. I think that comes down to each one of us at a personal level. We all have to ask ourselves, particularly as Christians what power do I have? How should I use it? Should I use it at all? And as I read the passage this week that Brad just read, I was struck by the aspect of power here. We see different powers colliding together. together. They're different kind of powers. Andy Crouch, uh, who's a Christian um, cultural critic and thinker and author, um, wrote a book on power called Redeeming Power, And he said that of all the gospel writers, John is the one who directly addresses the power that was at work within Jesus at every moment of his ministry. And I think that's true. When we look at the accounts the other gospels have of of this event here, I think it's true that John is drawing—he's drawing something out about power. So we're going to look at three powers that we see in this passage: the power of Satan, the power of the sword, and the power of the shepherd. I don't usually do like the three-point alliterative thing, but there you go. It worked out this morning. We won't answer all of the bajillion questions that I brought up, thankfully, right? You can breathe a sigh of relief. But I do want to look at this passage, look at Jesus, and see what Jesus' power and the way that Jesus used His power has to do with us. What does that have to do with our power and what we should do with it? So let's look at our passage. Uh, We'll look at the first power. If you want to look at uh, verse 1 with me, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, um, so they were in the upper room, so He had just, uh, you know, the, the past, like, I don't know, four chapters, um, so the past couple months of sermons that you've heard here, if you've been with us for a couple months, have all been Jesus' conversation after the Last Supper. So it's been a lot of words, but not a lot of action has actually happened. This is actually the next action passage after the Last Supper, and it was at the Last Supper that we found out that Judas was going to betray Jesus. Judas, who was one of the twelve, Judas, who was one of Jesus' closest friends, who saw everything that Jesus did throughout His ministry, who had closer access to Jesus than anybody else outside the twelve. We learned that Judas was going to betray Jesus. In fact, Judas used intimate, shared knowledge that he had with Jesus to betray Him. The Garden of Gethsemane that we see here and that we know from other Gospels, um, the way it says that they entered and then they left the garden uh, makes a lot of commentators think that this was actually a private, walled garden that Jesus and His disciples, because it actually says in our passage that they would meet together with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane a lot. So. How it probably worked is when they came to Jerusalem, they would have to retreat from the crowds. crowds would be following Jesus, He'd attract a lot of attention, and they needed some secret place to go. And so, this was their place. This was their meeting place that possibly only the disciples knew about. And so, Judas used that secret shared relational knowledge of Jesus to betray Him. Um, in your text, it says that Judas procured the soldiers and the chief priests and the temple servants um, there. It, it, what that actually means is that he, he guided them there. He took these people that were looking for an opportunity to arrest Jesus to the place that he knew that Jesus would have went. You might have noticed that I called this point the power of Satan, and yet we don't actually see Satan in this passage. Sam, do you see Satan somewhere in this room? No. Um, John, the reason I say that, the reason I say that there's the, we're seeing the power of Satan here is that John had taken pains throughout the gospel, throughout his writing, to show that Judas was aligned with Satan, to show that the presence of Judas in the garden is actually also the presence of Satan. So let me read this. This was from, you'll remember this from maybe a couple months ago. Jesus arose from supper. Going fast-forwarding in that passage a little bit. Jesus said the one who dipped the bread into the wine and ate it is the one who will betray him. So then it says, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into Judas. And then Jesus said, what you are going to do, do quickly. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Then that's when Jesus speaks all of the words that we've heard um, over the last couple months, and then now we find ourselves in the Garden of Gethsemane Gethsemane with Judas leading the chief priests and the Romans there. Satan enters Judas. What does that mean? Um, Let's talk about that for a second. Uh, As a little aside, I want to say what I don't think it means. I don't think that means that Judas gets off the hook here, or that John is letting Judas off the hook here. Because you could say that, oh, the devil put it into his mind, and then the devil entered him. So it wasn't actually Judas doing these things. Um, But I think throughout the Gospels, we see inklings of, um, you know, just kind of indications that there's something wrong in Judas's heart before this. There's something some part of Judas that doesn't love Jesus before that. Uh, We found out earlier that um, Judas was stealing money from the fund that Jesus and the disciples used. Um, Earlier in John… I think it's John 6, Jesus says that… He's talking about the twelve disciples, and He says, but one of you is a devil or the devil, depending on how it's translated. So, we already see some of these indications before, and in an, another part of Scripture later, we see Paul telling Christians not to give the devil a foothold with their sin. So, our sin is kind of a weapon that Satan uses against God and against us. So, Satan entered into Judas, but it doesn't seem like a situation where we're dealing with, like, just Satan and Judas's body from there on out, but that Judas, by his own wickedness, had left space in his heart for Satan… And so, in the betrayal, we see both Judas and Satan present here. John's taken pains to say, Satan was an active part in the arrest, the betrayal, and the crucifixion of Jesus. John knows what the other gospel writers had said. John was writing this after Matthew, Mark, and Luke had been written. Um, And so, he emphasized some things that he didn't, and this is one of those things. John is making clear that it was not just a human power that was coming against Jesus. It was a cosmic power, a satanic power that was being used and waged in a battle against Jesus in this garden. And it's a battle that started in the first garden, the very first garden, where God made the garden and Adam and Eve by the word of His power, and He gave them all the power to Um, name the plants, and live in the garden, and nurture it, and make things in it, and fill it. And then Satan put it into their minds that it was not enough power. And they believed him, and mankind fell. And ever since then, Satan had been at work in the world to turn us away from God, attempting to destroy what God had made. So Satan uses his power to collude with one of Jesus's best friends. And in doing so, he brings another power against Jesus. So, that was the first power. That was um, the power of Satan. Let's look at the second power here, the power of the sword. So, the chief priests who are like, you know, some of the authorities in the temple had been looking for a time to capture Jesus, but they were worried about an uprising. They were worried about a crowd getting together and saying, hey, we like Jesus. We don't want you to arrest him. Um, And that's why this arrest happens the way it does. The Jewish leaders talked to the Romans, who also did not want an uprising. And so the Romans, as it says in your text, sent a band of soldiers. Um, And a band uh, at full strength was 600 soldiers. We don't know if it was all 600 there, but we can um, pretty safely assume that there were hundreds of soldiers coming to arrest Jesus, along with some of the officers of the temple. I mean, so picture that. That's, it's, it's actually kind of a, a, a crazy, uh, crazy imagery that John gives us here, um, because there's hundreds of soldiers, there's temple officers, strapped with swords, bearing torches and lanterns, to arrest one guy that was only surrounded by eleven other guys, most of whom were fishermen, Of course, they did this to prevent any chance of an uprising, but, you know, you're bringing hundreds of soldiers, the best-trained soldiers in the world, against Jesus and some fishermen. That's a crazy show of force and power, the power of the Roman Empire and the power of the religious establishment coming against Jesus with weapons and swords. It's college football season. I'm an Ohio State fan. Um, I'm not, like, a super crazy one. So, some of the Buckeye, you know, some of the, you know, kind of crazier Buckeyes might not claim me. Um, but even as a, you know, kind of lightweight Ohio State fan, I know one thing, and that's that I am not supposed to like Michigan. Sorry, where's Jason? Sorry, Jason. Um, so, uh, Michigan, Ohio State have this, has this big rivalry, and uh, a few years ago, um Ohio State had won, like, ten games in a row versus Michigan. And there was this viral photo that came out of the Michigan defensive room in their, like, you know, in their uh, facilities. And across the wall in the Michigan defensive room was the phrase, solve your problems with aggression. Solve your problems with aggression. And, of course, I and other... Ohio State fans made fun of this, like, aren't you sure you don't want to, like, solve your problems with, like, better recruiting or coaching or game planning or something like that, because that's how we were beating them? But that's kind of the human default, isn't it? Let's solve our problems with aggression. It's kind of the human default for thinking about how to use power. That's the way that many prominent sociologists and political philosophers have thought about power. This is a Friedrich Nietzsche. My idea is that every specific body strives to become master over all space and to extend its force, its will of power, and to thrust back all that resists its extension. But it continually encounters similar efforts on the part of other bodies and ends by coming to an arrangement with those of them that are sufficiently related to it. Thus, they conspire together for power. And the process goes on and on. So, in other words... Everyone in this struggle is in this struggle to, like, completely dominate everybody else with their power, and any cooperation that you see between people is really just conditional, and it's temporary, and it's ultimately about domination. Sociologist C. Wright Mills said, all politics is a struggle for power, and the ultimate kind of power is violence, the sword. So we have Jesus who looks like a threat to those powers, to Satan, to the Roman Empire, to the Jewish authorities. So they bring all of their power against Jesus. We need to dominate this guy. And while we're still talking about the power of the sword, let's look at Peter. In verse 10 it says, And then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. So, Peter might be playing for Team Jesus, but he's using the same playbook as those other guys, right? He's using the same playbook as Satan and the Roman soldiers and the Jewish authorities, the power of the sword. I'm going to use my power to assert Jesus' status and privilege among all these people. If they're coming for Him, I'm coming for them. And what does Jesus say to that? Verse 11, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? In using the power of the sword, Peter might have been fighting for Jesus. His sword here, even though he was fighting for Jesus, his sword was just as opposed to Jesus' mission as the Romans' was. In fact, you could even say that Peter's sword is the biggest threat in the garden to Jesus' mission. Why is that? That leads us to our third power. The power of the shepherd. So hundreds of soldiers with the Jewish authorities and Judas with Satan march into the garden with torches and lanterns and weapons. And don't miss the fact that this was in the dark of night. Um, Pastor Mike has throughout the Gospel of John been really good at reminding us how important the themes of dark and light are in the Gospel of John. Luke records Jesus saying this to this group of enemies… He says, Jesus says, this is your hour, and the power of darkness. So the powers of Satan and Rome and the chief priests all come together against Jesus, and he calls this the power of darkness. Look at verse 4, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, notice that. So there's some critical scholarship that I unfortunately had to read way too much of in college that spends a lot of time trying to think of um, this story of Jesus and answer the question, well, why did Jesus die? And they're asking all these questions about background, and the, the kind of gist of it was that, you know, they were kind of acting like Jesus walked into Jerusalem, and He tripped, and He fell on a cross. How did that happen? Who knows? But John makes it clear throughout his gospel that Jesus is fully knowledgeable, and He's fully in control, fully in power of what's about to happen to Him. Let me continue in that verse. Jesus came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered Him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am He. When Jesus said to them, I am He, they drew back and fell to the ground. So there He is, the, um, the He there, where He says, I am He, that's an implied part, that He's not actually in the Greek. It says, ego a me. You may remember from us talking about this before that That's I am. We've seen this throughout the Gospel of John where Jesus uses these I am statements as a claim to divinity, as a way of identifying himself with the very God Yahweh of the Old Testament. Because um, in Moses in Exodus 3, uh, God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. It's connected to God's name of Yahweh. And so there are int- instances in John where Jesus is very obviously saying, "I am," and he's identifying himself with the Lord, like in John eight, where Jesus says, "Before Abraham was, I am." There's no other way you can interpret that sentence than that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, "I am God." However, there's also just some like normal ways that this is used in the Gospel of John, where it's saying like, "I am hungry. I want a sandwich." And so, you know, it's, it's kind of a, an argument between people who are studying this to say, well, is Jesus really claiming He's God here, or is He not? Right? Like, trying to figure out what exactly Jesus is saying. I'm going to give you a, a really academic, you know, deep interpretive tool for you to use here to determine whether Jesus is calling Himself God or if He's not. Okay? You ready? If Jesus says, "I am ego e me, and everybody falls down. <laughs> then he's probably—that probably means that this is a claim to be God, right? Why did they fall down? Jesus says, "I am ego e me, and everybody falls down. The text actually makes it clear that Judas was a part of this too. Why did they fall down? Uh, some people think it's because they were just so surprised that Jesus would claim to be God that everybody, you know, in their shock just kind of fell down. That doesn't happen in real life very often, does it, right? But there were also Roman soldiers with them who didn't, wouldn't care, you know, they, they would be bored by Jesus saying this. They might have chuckled at Jesus saying this. They didn't, you know, that, that, that theological thing from the Hebrew and the Old Testament, that, that wouldn't have phased them at all. So why... Why did this large group of people, Roman soldiers, officers of the chief priests, Judas, and Satan with Judas, why did they all fall down? Here's what I think. Throughout Scripture, we see in instances, events, that we call theophanies, theophanies. And the, a theophany is like a special appearance, a special revelation of God to people in a way that they can feel or see. And the most frequent response to a theophany in the Bible is hitting the deck, falling down, hitting the ground. That's usually either out of an awestruck, fearful worship where people kind of understand that, okay, this is what God is… God is appearing to me. And they're so awestruck and fearful worship that they fall to the ground. But there's also some times where they're just so surprised and bewildered that they actually just get knocked down, and they aren't even super aware of what's happening. That's what happened to Paul in Acts 9, right? He's walking on the road to Damascus. He's about to kill some Christians, and uh, he sees a bright light in the sky, and he just falls down. He doesn't know it's God yet. He doesn't know that Jesus is about to reveal himself to him. He just falls down. He gets knocked down, maybe a better way of putting it. And I think that's what happened here. Imagine you're looking for something, you're in a pitch black room, you know, your eyes maybe they've like adjusted to the darkness, it's just pitch black, and then all of a sudden just for a second there's the brightest light that you've ever seen. You wouldn't really know, you wouldn't even really know what you saw, you'd just be blinded by that and confused, and I think that's what's happening here. Listen to what New Testament scholar Andrew Lincoln says about this about this passage. Um, This is the typical human reaction to a theophany. For a moment, the true status of the characters in the narrative is graphically depicted. The ultimate powerlessness of the mass representatives of the world's powers, the Roman forces, the Jewish guards, the disciple-turned-betrayer, the powerlessness of them is revealed as they have to retreat and prostrate prostrate themselves in the presence of the unique divine agent, who is one with God. So for just a moment, when Jesus says, Ego Eimi, I am, the lights turn on, and all the power in the room is laid bare, and we see what's truly happening here, and who really has the highest power. When he says that, God in flesh reveals himself, and all the powers of darkness fall. Matthew tells us that when Jesus rebuked Peter for striking with the sword, Jesus says, do you not think that I could call on my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? So remember, the Romans brought a band. That was up to 600. Twelve legions would be 72,000 plus 5,000 horsemen to the Romans' few hundred that were there. Jesus is the only one who truly knows the power dynamic in this situation. This reminds me of one of my favorite stories from the Old Testament It's from 2 Kings 6. I'm going to give you the shortened um, NSPV, the new Sam's paraphrase version. So Syria is at war with Israel. The king of Syria is at war with Israel. And the king of Syria keeps getting mad because somehow the Israelites know what his plans are before he does. And so, he talks to some of his advisors, and his advisors are like, oh, there's this guy named Elisha, and he's telling the Israelite army everything that you're saying to us in private. And so, he's like, okay, I'm going to send an army to go get Elisha. He sends an army to go get Elisha. Elisha's house is surrounded by the Syrian army. Elisha and his servant walk outside in the morning. They see an entire army surrounding them. And justifiably, the servant's freaking out. He's just freaking out. And he's like, Elijah, what are we going to do? And Elisha just has this kind of calm chuckle. Maybe he has like a little smile on his face. And he says, they're the ones that are for us are more than the ones that are against us. And then he looks up to God and he says, Hey God, why don't you show them what I'm seeing here? So God does. And all of a sudden, the servant can see that surrounding the army that's surrounding them is an ent- entire mountains filled with chariots of fire. The army... Of the Lord, the very host of heaven, ready to attack. that's what's happening in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's what Jesus is revealing when he's saying, "Ego and me, I am, I have these armies. I've really got the power. There were legions of. His heavenly hosts primed and ready for a battle. They were, they were on go. They were waiting for Jesus' word. Jesus could have beat them in a second while they were on the ground fumbling around just from two words that Jesus said. Jesus could have beat them in a second. He could have taken out the chief priests miles away. He could have taken back the temple, but he didn't. He could have toppled the Roman Empire with a word, but he didn't. Jesus could have won the war, if you can even call it that, in moments. But he didn't win the war because if he, in that moment, because if he did, he would have lost you. Look at verse 8. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of whom you gave me, I have not lost one there he was talking about the physical, direct safety of his disciples at that moment, but he was alluding to not losing any of them spiritually like he had said before. Jesus had said that he was the good shepherd, and the good shepherd doesn't lose sheep. He lays his life down for him. By his power, he could have crushed empires. He could have crushed the powers of darkness right then and there, but ultimately, we would have been crushed too. Because we have all, in our own way, been colluders with the powers of darkness. By our own inner darkness and our own sin, we've used our powers and we've taken up swords. We've taken up swords with the Pharisees' corrupt religious leaders. We've taken up swords in ways with Satan. We've taken up swords with the powers of the world. And the punishment for that is to have the power of the crushing wrath of God come down on us. And so the only answer to that for a God who loves us is to come down Himself with the full power of divinity and to use that power not by a sword but by laying His life down, submitting to being bound up and arrested in our passage so He could take on the punishment for our sins. He's the only one that can do that. Remember that in John 10, when Jesus says he's the good shepherd, he also said, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. So all that to say, after thinking, seeing those different powers in our passage, what does that show us about power? On an individual level, on a whole capital C church level, what do we do with power? Do we use it to dominate society, to bend the world to the whim of what we think the laws should be based on the gospel? Do we take the world by force? Unfortunately, that's what some Christians in the church before have done time and time again. There's obvious examples in church history of that, and we still have problems in the church with that today and on a personal level today. I want to claim my full status and privileges and I want to dominate with my power. But from our passage and Jesus' response to Peter and giving himself up instead of using his power to win and to dominate, I think this question, the answer to this question has to be no. It's not how we use power. But maybe the harder question is, well, what do we do with it? Do we just lay our power down? Do we just not use it and give it up? that's also been an answer that some Christians have taken through the years to the question of power. And a lot of times when I've seen this text written about or preached, it's that Jesus is laying his power down. And I don't think that's, I think it's close, I don't think that's precisely what Jesus is doing here. He tells us that he never lays his power down. He always has the power of the living, being the living God, but what he laid down was his claim to his status and his privileges from it. Look at Philippians 2, um, or let me just read this part of Philippians 2 with me. Philippians 2, Paul says that Jesus was in the form of God, but He didn't count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But He emptied Himself, taking the form of a servant. When Jesus does that, when Jesus takes the form of the servant, He isn't emptying Himself of being fully God. He's He's still God. Some, some Christians um, or some, some people have taken this and thinking about this passage, they've seen that word kenosis, which is the word for emptying there, and they're saying, well, God has, you know, Jesus has emptied Himself of His divinity or His divine attributes. That's not what Jesus does. What He does is He doesn't count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. He doesn't take all of the status and privilege that comes with being God himself, but instead he lays his life down for us. He lays his life down for us. What we do with our power is not, definitely not, use it for the domination of others. What we do with our power is that we redeem it. We leverage every single bit of power that the Lord has given us. And we use it for the sake of His kingdom. We use it for the powerless. We use it for do- those that don't have what we have. Andy Crouch, uh, th- there have been a couple books written recently um, by Christian thinkers. One of the ones is the one is uh, Andy Crouch that I mentioned earlier. Another was by Diane Langberg, who's a um, a expert um, Christian expert in trauma, um, and she's written a lot of books on counseling and therapy. And uh, they both wrote books called "Redeeming Power," which I think the the titles are, you know, even tell us a a lot about this. Um, But Andy Crouch, in his his book, he wrote that uh, power is really just making things. It's the ability that God's given us to make things, and it was intended in the beginning for flourishing. That we could make things, and that we could use our power in ways that create flourishing. We don't give up our power. We don't use it to dominate others. We use it many times in laying down our claim to our own status and our own privileges For the sake of others. In the New Testament, uh, what we see a lot of times when they're writing about power, um, and they're kind of addressing, like, how do we as Christians use power? What what are we supposed to be doing? A lot of times what we see is when they have to, when when Paul and Peter and the apostles have to call out people for using their power unwisely or sinfully, usually what they do is that, you know, they don't say... Hey, you've broken the Jesus Revised Statute 21 3A, right? They don't do that. What they do is they say, look at Jesus. Look at the way that he used power. Look at the way that he was our servant and washed our feet. Look at the way that he submitted himself to be bound and arrested. Look at Jesus. You're not living like that you 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 need to you need to look at jesus and reshape how you think about your own power and so we see like in corinthians where when paul's writing to the corinthians and there's um, a brother in christ that's suing another brother in christ paul says look at jesus wouldn't you rather be defrauded wouldn't you rather lay down your claim to your own status and privileges And use your power to show what love in the church really looks like? Or when they're taking the Lord's Supper, and the people that are rich are able to get off work, and they come, and they get drunk, and they eat a bunch of food, and they're full, and then there's nothing for the poorer brothers and sisters in Christ who weren't able to get there in time, and so they have nothing. Paul says, look at Jesus. Wouldn't you rather... Drop your claim to status and privilege and instead use your power to show the world what unity in Christ looks like? Brothers and sisters, we all have, we might not all have the same amount of power, the same types of power, but we have relationships. We have money, we have possessions, we have connections, we have education, we have, we have all of these ways. We, we, you might not think of yourself as a powerful person, right? But we have all of these ways that God has given us power for the flourishing of our body and of St. Louis. And so I just want to challenge you this morning to look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look at the way that he used his power, not in claiming all the statuses and privileges that he could have gotten, but in laying his life down so that he could buy us back and so that we could be a part of this redemption of power back to what it was originally for, the flourishing of other people and loving the world, like it says in the Gospel of John, to the uttermost. Love them to the uttermost. Let's pray. God, we thank you um, for letting us in on all of these details. We thank you for reminding us that Even when it feels like we're surrounded, that we are surrounded by you. That Jesus has brought us back and that ultimately by his death, he did, not in the moment, but he did end up defeating death by death. That he ushered in a kingdom that has outlasted the Roman Empire and will continue to outlast the Roman Empire to eternity. Lord, we thank you that you sent Jesus. We thank you that he took the brunt of the power of the wrath for our sin and has forgiven us. And we thank you that we are now able to use power in a redeemed way, not dominating, not giving up, but leveraging it for the good of the world Loving it to the uttermost. Amen.